Okay, time for our main message uh, this morning, and I uh, pray that the series so far on Daniel has been a blessing to you. Uh, today we'll be looking at, uh, in particular, the introduction of, uh, probably what's going to be uh, over the next uh, maybe two weeks, or maybe three, um, this whole persona of the little horn uh, and uh, its, its connection or his connection with uh, Revelation. So we're going to be uh, digging into a bit of Revelation uh, starting today. And hopefully it'll be a blessing to you as well as we look at this uh, figure the Bible calls the Antichrist or the Beast. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, verse 23 to 25 this morning. And uh, it's building upon this fourth kingdom that we spoke about last week and, and how this kingdom represented uh, Rome, but how at the end uh, of, uh, of time and this, this time we call the tribulation period, Rome will be essentially like revived, but in a different form. So we'll have a bit of a look at that um, and what that means and this person that arises during this time as well. Daniel chapter 7 verse 23 says, Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise and another shall arise after them and he shall be diverse from the first and shall subdue three kings. And he shall speak great words against the most high and shall wear out the saints of the most high and think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of a time. Let's uh, commit this time to the Lord. We thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you that we can understand it. And we thank you that your spirit is our teacher. And we pray that he would be our teacher this morning, uh, that our hearts, that our minds would be open to your truth and that we would seek to live it as we learn it. So we thank you for this time once again, Heavenly Father, and we pray for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things we learned that's exciting, uh, when you find out about the Lord Jesus Christ, is his dual nature. The fact that he is not just a man like every other man in history and every other religious sort of teacher in history, but he is literally God manifested in the flesh, that he is literally the son of God who was born uh, into this world, who lived a life like us in this world, except perfectly. He went through the sufferings that we did, but nevertheless, he never ever lost his, his, God's, his godly nature. He was, he, he was God, the Son of God, sitting on a throne on the right hand of the Father uh, for eternity past. And he is, he was God and man together combined while he was walking the earth. And now he's sitting back at the right hand of the Father. And he is still both God and man, fully man and fully God. And that revelation uh, becomes very, very clear and it reveals to us the nature of the Trinity uh, more so in the New Testament. There are plenty of allusions to it in the Old Testament, but the New Testament just reveals it in its fullness and its beauty um, when the Lord Jesus came into the uh, earth. As in uh, most things, the devil imitates 
the things of God. In fact, we're going to be looking at that as a topic in today's sermon. And one of those things, when we speak about the word antichrist, the term we often think about, when we think about something as anti, we normally think about it as, as, as something that's against something else. In this particular case, it's not really that. Antichrist means in place of Christ, someone who is pretending to be Christ. And in every sense of the word, um, the Antichrist is trying to be a replacement of, but the devil's replacement. So whatever God has, the devil imitates, and one of his imitations is the Messiah. God had promised a Messiah to save the world, and the devil is going to try to do the same. So we'll be looking at this character today, or the beginning of it today, and the focus will be upon who this person actually is and the nature of this person, because like Christ is dual-natured, this person will be dual in nature. And so we'll be revealing today the name of one of the natures, the literal name. So hopefully it'll be a blessing to you and um, it won't be too confusing because there's a lot of information to get through. So let's see if we can get into it. Okay, so last week we looked at um, the fourth beast in Daniel's vision, which was the Roman Empire. And in Daniel 7.23 it says, And thus he said, The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. Okay, so um, just going back, just on a, on a foundational level, we need to understand that these kingdoms, um, you might say there are other kingdoms in the world that, you know, that, are, that were large or whatever, that were empires. This kingdom or these kingdoms are specifically related to those that have a direct influence and control over Israel, God's people. And it shall be the same in the end when, it, it, when the Roman Empire is revived. The prophecies here, and we'll look at this in more detail next uh, week, revolve around the devil's interaction with God's chosen people. And the reason there's a, there's a revival at the end, uh, and there's been a huge gap, is because in the midst of the fall of the Roman Empire and uh, the revival of the Roman Empire at the end, um, there has been a thing called the church which means the church is not going to be around and God God starts again his program with his people Israel. We'll be looking at that in more detail next week. So his fourth kingdom um, is said to spread across the entire earth. And it says, it's interesting, it says it shall devour it and tread it down and break it in pieces. Now, pay close attention to those three things. Why does it say devour the whole earth tread it down and break it in pieces. Well, it's interesting that these three terms are used because the Apostle John, when he sees the same beast in, in the book of Revelation, he sees detail that Daniel doesn't note for us or possibly didn't see himself. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 13, verse 2. Revelation 13, 2. And John describes the beast that he sees, the fourth one, as arising out of the sea, just as Daniel did. And if you remember, Daniel saw the first three beasts. One was a lion, one was a bear, and the other one was a, uh, a leopard. And it's interesting to note what John sees in this fourth beast. 
And so Revelation 13, 2 says, And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. So the dragon here is the devil. So the devil gives him his power, his seat, and great authority. But notice what he's comprised of. He's comprised of, this fourth beast is comprised of parts of the previous beasts put together. And so if you notice, he has the mouth of a lion. And what does the mouth, what does the mouth of a lion do? It devours. And so you'll, most of you are familiar with the verse, the devil roams or goes around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And so this beast has a mouth of a lion. It has the feet of a bear. And you'll notice what it says. It, it tramples down the, uh, the earth. Well, the feet of a bear on a, on a, on a body of a, of a leopard would be pretty, they would stand out. They wouldn't even seem to be in proportion. But if you wanted feet that would pound down things um, in a brutish sort of way, uh, the feet of a bear are probably going to do it. And finally, this it says that he's got the he's got the he looks like a leopard, and a leopard is quick because remember it was related to the um, the the spread of the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great, and how quickly he was able to do that, and, and the same sort of thing is going to be. Uh, occurring with this particular um, uh, beast. But a leopard can tear things apart. And so it rips to pieces those things. And what's even interesting about a leopard is that its whole body is covered with spots. Okay. And those spots almost symbolize the pieces that the earth will be broken up into, but that comprise the whole thing. And so the beast if you look at it, symbolizes these 10 kings that in the end are going to come together at some point in the future. And so it has this, it, it looks spotted. It has the mouth of a lion. It has the feet of a bear. And then John sees some other things concerning it, which Daniel didn't see as well. And we'll look at that in a minute. But the final kingdom, the final representation of this kingdom we see in verse 24 of Daniel chapter 7, he says, And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise. And they still shall arise in our day. They still haven't arisen yet. And another shall arise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. So there's going to come ten kings at the end, rules of ten nations. And there's going to come one after they've been sort of formulated together he'll be different to all of them. And he's going to subdue three of them, but bring them all together. So the 10 earthly kings haven't occurred. They're still to occur. And if you remember the state, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, they respond or correspond to the 10 toes at the end of the feet. And they also correspond to the feet being mixed a mix of iron and clay together. And so if you remember the legs of the actual, um, the statue were made of pure iron. Well, iron is very strong and the legs are very long. And so we look at the Roman kingdom um, as, as being the longest over a thousand, uh, I think it was 300 years that it actually lasted in various forms, but it was split into East and West as well. And, but when you get down to the feet, 
the feet are a different thing again. They are a, not just iron. They are a mix of iron and clay. And so what I shared with you was that the feet of the feet and the toes that are made of iron mixed with clay represent what we call democratic governments. In other words, we aren't stuck to our leaders for very long in democratic nations. I don't know if you noticed that. They don't last for too long. They may last for a while, but in democratic nations, I mean, like the US has a, a term limit on their, on their presidents. They can't even last for more than, I think it's two terms or eight years. Uh, in Australia, we don't tend to keep our, our prime ministers here for too long. They get chopped off pretty quickly. And that's true for most democratic nations where they're not, the people aren't stuck with a ruler. And so turn with me to Daniel, go back to Daniel chapter 2, verse 41 with me, because it says there, and whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. So there's going to be 10 kingdoms. So the kingdom's divided. It's not just one nation. It's a number of them that are put together. But there shall be in it the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. So it's there, not only is it not just one kingdom like Babylon, which was just one kingdom, it shall be a conglomeration of kingdoms which are going to come together. So there's already a bit of, you know, um, what happens in, in, in countries working together. Sometimes they don't work together 100%. So it's not as strong as a single one. But then it says, and as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. Verse 43 says, And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, that's very soft and watery clay, they shall, they, the kings of those countries, shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. They don't stick to each other. So this kingdom is going to be partly strong in that it has the ability to break. And I suppose if you look at the power of Rome and, and, and if you've ever seen, you know, pictures of Roman legions and, and the way they they were they used their, their weapons and, and the, the strength they had to subdue nations. Um, they were the most advanced culture of their day. They had the most advanced weapons, uh, systems, and and they crushed anyone who got in their way. Well, if you look at the power that is contained in the world today, the firepower, the the weaponry, the you know, if you look at the, all the weapons we have compared to the Romans, that's pretty strong. They're pretty strong. They can destroy many people even more quickly than the Romans ever could with the, with their strength, and so it's still very strong, but broken up into conf a confederation at the end of ten kingdoms. That won't come without their problem, without its problems, and that's reflected in the fact that you'll notice as well. It says that the little horn that comes up at the end has to subdue three of them. So out of the ten, three are probably going to want to cause some problems, and he has to subdue three of them to to get them in line and get them all on the same page. So the mixing of the iron and the clay represents the mingling of rulers with people in a democratic country, who unlike previous uh, kingdom. So if you can imagine Babylon, remember Nebuchadnezzar didn't go to his public to ask them what their opinion was about things. Neither did the Persians or the Greeks or the Romans. I mean, the Romans had a very sort of um, uh, limited form of, uh, of democracy or representation. The Greeks had it, but really didn't. They had, they had rulers 
um, starting from Alexander, who just did what he wanted, and then under him came obviously his generals that took that took the kingdom to four uh, parts. But they didn't mingle themselves with people. They didn't. They didn't actually, you know, go down to the public and get the public's opinion about things and look for popularity votes and things of that nature. They didn't mingle themselves. But these ones, in the end, mingle themselves. They. 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 Almost part of the same, the same people that they're representing as well, um, and they take on the decision making with respect to their populations, what their populations want. It's almost like they co-rule with people, but they don't tend to stick together for too long, because leaders are either voted out for by their people or by people if they're not happy with what they're getting in return, or they're voted out even by their own party um, when that when they make their party, you know upset. And so when you think about it, it's almost a, a, a perfect picture of what a democracy is like in our day. Democracy such as, for example, the US has enormous strength about it. But at the same time, if you look at what happens in the US, there's a whole lot of division going on within the country. And the, the rulers, whether it's Joe Biden, whoever else it is, can't just go and do what they want. They're limited with what they can do. So they are mingled but they don't stick together and there is strength still in it. And so it's a wonderful picture, almost a perfect picture of what our modern day democracy is like. And it's an amazing prophecy if you think about it, because how can the people of a country not stick with their leaders outside of a democracy? They can't, they don't have a choice. I mean, in, in every other system, whether it's a monarch or whether it's a dictator or whether, whatever else it is, they don't have a choice. It, they, they're stuck with their leaders. You know, whatever else it is, the Babylonians didn't have a choice about their king, the Persians, the Greeks. They didn't have a choice of who was ruling. And if you look at countries that aren't really democratic in our world today, I mean, ask the Chinese, the Saudis and people living in, you know, Iran or the Taliban, do they really get a choice? about who their rulers are and, you know, and if they don't, they don't. They don't have a choice. They're stuck with their leaders. But the prophecy concerning the end of the world and these last 10 kings that occur points to the, the confederation or 10 democratically governed nations who will align themselves in an alliance. Now, if you just think about that for a moment, if you know much history, it's actually incredible that 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 they would that this would even come to pass. Even even nowadays, I mean, if you look at it today, we have um, so many groups of nations that come together for various purposes. And if you if you know that the EU is made of twenty seven nations, then there's the G nine, the G seven, the G ten. Um, you would have heard just recently of AUKUS with with the, the US, um, Australia, who else is it? England and I think it was India. So they've come together for another specific purpose. And there's four democratic nations that have come together. So alliances in our day of democratic independent nations united for a cause is common. We're actually used to it. Um, in what other time in history could this ever have been a reality? The answer is really not much time at all because it's only ever been really since the 1900s, 1900s, mind you, 
that even choosing more than one or having more than one or two democratic nations has been an impossibility. The, the US was the first democratic um, uh, republic in the world um, that gave the people the, the complete freedom to choose their, um, to choose their, uh, their government. And, and it was in 17, late 1700s, but it wasn't really until the 1900s that a lot of the other countries began to follow suit. So think about this for a moment. Some 2,500 years since Daniel recorded his words, we live in a day when this is possible, when you can have 10 strong, democratically governed nations come together in an alliance. That has never, ever been the case before. And so if these 10 kings come from 10 democratically elected governments, you could not have had that situation occur until late 1900s. Yet today, there are, or there are said to be, around 96 democracies in this world out of 196 recognized countries, independent countries. And so it's not a coincidence that we find ourselves in these particular days. So when will these 10 kings arise? Well, these 10 kings, it says, come, around, come about from a, or for a brief period of time. It mentions that there's only one hour of time. And they're going to give their power and allegiance to the one the Bible calls the beast. And not only will he empower them and lead them, but they will seek, they'll be encouraged to make war with the lamb. So they will coalesce their power to actually fight against Jesus Christ, but they will lose. Do you remember from the beginning, we have seen that the beasts in Daniel's dreams and the parts of Nebuchadnezzar's statue are both kingdoms or empires and rulers. So remember I said to you that when you, whenever you saw, for example, in, um, in the lion, for example, in uh, Babylon, it's representing Babylon, the lion was both, or the head of gold, let's say that, take that as an example, the head of gold represented the kingdom of Babylon, but was representative of or epitomized a particular king and that was nebuchadnezzar and so the same is true of all of those things and it's a, it's true also for this last empire so turn with me to revelation chapter 13 verse 1 revelation 13 verse 1 because it speaks there about about this particular beast that rises up this this empire that rises up from the sea and John sees the same sort of beast that Daniel sees and with a bit more detail to it. So have a look here. It says, And I stood upon the, Revelation 13, 1, And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. Now, I want you to pay close attention. The dragon gives him his power, his seat, and great authority. It's the dragon, the devil, that gives this beast his authority, his power, and a seat. In other words, to sit and rule. So we're speaking about not only a kingdom here, but an individual. 
And it says in verse 3, And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. Now, um, you'll notice it also says that he's got seven heads. So in John's vision, he doesn't just see a, uh, a beast which looks terrible and has ten horns. Now, he actually sees a beast that has seven heads and ten horns on 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 its head. I don't know if it's on one head or all the heads on the on, on one final head. I think it's on one head by the looks of it. But it says that I saw one of his heads as, as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. Now, the beast is not only just the kingdom. They wondered that's sort of how wonderful and powerful it is but also this individual. So the beast, as if you recall, rising up out of the sea, pictures a kingdom and a king rising up from the Gentile world. But this beast has seven heads and ten horns. And you'll notice the names on the seven heads have names of blasphemy. Now, blasphemy is something that that is directly in contradiction to and opposed to and um, uh, offensive to God. And we know that the devil gives it power. But what about these heads? The beast has the elements of all the previous kingdoms combined. Interesting. So think about that for a moment. But it has these seven heads. And these seven heads have crowns on each of them. Well, who were the seven heads that have got crowns on them? And why would they have names of blasphemy on them? Well, the reason is that they are demonic spirits. They are demonic entities that have ruled the various kingdoms of this world throughout the ages. And they include, as we have shared with you in previous sermons, the Prince of Babylon, the Prince of Persia, the Prince of Grecia, the Prince of Rome, and may also include the Prince of Egypt and some others, which were not built into this, into Daniel's prophecy, but nevertheless are there. So I want to remind you as believers that Ephesians 6.12 tells us we will wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities against powers against the rulers of the darkness of this world against spiritual wickedness in high places that's who we're talking about those are the heads and there are seven of them in fact there will be eight so our wrestle is not against earthly rulers no 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 our our battle here as believers in this world is with the entities behind those earthly rulers who are driving them in a particular direction. And so the principality, which means a rule, which means, um, which means the governing of something, they have power, they rule in darkness, so we can't see them, and they are spiritually wicked, and they are in high places. In other words, they exist in the heavenly realm. We can't see them, but they rule in the temporal world. And these are the seven heads that are part of this beast, which is which are crowned, each one of them. Okay, 
and they are rulers that have come down through the various kingdoms in this world and ruled over the various kingdoms in this world. And did you notice that John says that he saw one of, one of the heads as wounded to death and his deadly wound was healed? You know, and then it says all the world wondered after the beast. Well, if what I'm saying is true, how can a demonic principality have a deadly wound and then that be healed? Well, um, if each head is a, dem a demonic principality, then one of them has been dealt a death blow and can't continue like the others, free to roam and free to come together and to, and to work together. Um, Revelation 13.3 says, And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wandered after the beast. Now remember, the beast is not just a, 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 a being, okay? It's actually a kingdom as well. And so one of these demonic spirits, one of these demonic entities, has been dealt a death blow, let's say. And it's a bit like um, the prophecy that the Lord gave to, or God gave to the woman, when he says that... Um, that you know, your seed, that the, the devil shall bruise his heel, but he shall crush, crush his head. Okay, so the, the fulfillment of that was that the devil was able to have Jesus crucified on, on a cross, but he rose again. And so that became like the, like the, the bruise to the heel, like a snake biting uh, the heel of someone, but Jesus rose again. But it says that, Jesus will actually crush his head. Now, does that mean the devil is actually destroyed completely? Well, no, because angels live forever. So what happens to them? Well, they're thrown into the lake of fire. And in this particular case, thrown into the bottomless pit. And so one of them, one of the, the, the heads is wounded. And, he is, and it represents the fact that one of these demonic entities that has ruled in the past has been thrown into the bottomless pit and chained up there. He's had his go around the block already, but he's been chained in a pit for some reason. We don't know exactly why, but we may have some indications of why. And so he is one of those seven heads and he's been around before. He's been thrown into the bottomless pit and he's, and it's planned for him to have a resurrection, okay? This demon is planned to rise again. So he rises again. Yes, he does. He rises again from the bottomless pit. So have a look at Revelation 17, 8 with me, because we're going to identify the name of this particular devil. And we're going to see who the driving force behind the Antichrist is going to be in the end and how this wounded head gets to come back up again and, and is restored. Revelation 17, 8 says, The beast that thou sawest was, and look at John what he writes, and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder, whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, 
when they behold the beast that was, that is not, and yet is. And, and here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. Now the woman here is a, is a false religious system. And we'll look at a bit more about her next week. And there are seven kings. Five are fallen. And one is, that's in John's day. And another is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth and is of the seven. So notice how it says he is the eighth, but he's of the seven. He's been around before and goeth into perdition. And so by the apostle John's day, the beast, one of the seven demonic entities that have ruled in the past, uh, one that was, is not in John's day. He wasn't around in John's day. He is somewhere else. Well, he's been thrown into the abyss by the Son of God. But he shall ascend from the bottomless pit like a resurrection, and he will be judged by God in the last days. The, the, the perdition, going to perdition means he's going to be finally judged and he'll be thrown into the lake of fire. So as I've said, the woman is a false religious system. She's riding on top of these seven hills, which represent these seven kings, who are seven demonic spirits. Five have come in John's day. One was ruling in John's day, and another was yet to come after John. That demonic entity will only rule for a very short time, it says. Well, a very short time is about three and a half years. And because when John says, when he cometh, he must continue a short space. So there were five that had come and gone. One was ruling in John's day, which I think was inspiring someone like Nero in those days. Or I think it might have been Domitian in John's day. And then another one is going to come. A, a seventh one is going to come. But when he comes... And that's right at the end. He's only going to come for a very short time. And why does he only come for a very short time? Because when the eighth arrives and arises from that bottomless pit, he steps aside for him. And so the final demonic ruler, it says, and this, this one must be pretty bad, to be thrown into the bottomless pit and to be chained up for who knows how long. This one was pretty nasty by the looks of it. He may be the actual worst one. And of all of the devil's generals, this, this one's probably the worst one. So you remember how Alexander the Great conquered the world and then it was split amongst his four generals? Well, the devil's going to have, he's had seven to work with. And this one, for some reason, has been locked up and is going to be the eighth as well but he's been one of the seven before. And so it says that when he finally comes back and he's going to speak blasphemies, he's going to indwell the one the Bible calls the Antichrist. And he will make war with the saints. So he's going to try and kill every believer. And in those days, the focus will be on the Jews who will have turned to Christ at this stage. And he's going to prepare the nations for war against God himself for the return of Christ. And we know the name of that entity that will rise up from the pit in the last days. And the eighth demon, which is of the seven, 
will possess the little horn that's that's um, spoken about in Daniel. He possesses that person. Now, some people say, oh, the Antichrist is possessed by the devil. No, he's not possessed by the devil. The devil doesn't mess around possessing people himself. He's not locking himself into any. He's a prince of the power of the air. He gets someone else to possess him. And who's he going to get? Well, he's top guy he's going to get to possess him. And we and the other thing is that, that some people think that the, um, the devil has been locked up. He hasn't been locked up. He's not locked up now. He's roaming around free as a bird at the moment. He's restricted by God, obviously, to what he can do. He was restricted back in the Old Testament too. But the devil has never been, ever been in the bottomless pit. He has never been bound in the bottomless pit. He will be bound in the bottomless pit in the future. And that is when Christ rules the earth physically. So the name of this angel that rises from this bottomless pit that has been locked up for who knows how long, his name, the Bible says, is Abaddon. And the Greeks have a name for him, which is equivalent, and they call it Apollyon. And so this is an event which occurs during the last seven years of this world before Christ's return, the years that we call the tribulation. But it's just before the final three and a half years occurs, the last three and a half years. So the seven-year tribulation is split up into two halves, the first three and a half and the second three and a half. And what I'm going to share with you is that the first three and a half are governed by that seventh demonic ruler who builds up this antichrist this person who's a charismatic being who's going to try and bring everyone together who proclaims himself to be the messiah the one that everyone's been waiting for but then at the three and a half year mark he steps aside and this other angel that arises from this bottomless pit during this time possesses him and the name abaddon means the destroyer and so this person is going to go from being a charismatic messiah-like figure to a demonic figure that destroys anyone in his path and seeks to destroy and annihilate anyone who opposes him, especially those who have turned into Christ. So look at Revelation chapter 9 with me for a moment. Revelation chapter 9, we're going to look at this particular being because... When you think of it, it's an amazing thing that God's given us his name. Revelation 9, 1 says, And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth, and to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit, as a smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, and unto them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. Now, it goes on to explain they're not really scorpions. These things are devils that have been locked up down there for so long. And it explains what they can do and what they can't do. And we'll have a bit of a look at that possibly next week. But go down to verse 11 with me, because who comes out with them? Well, it says they had, and they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit. That's not the devil. The devil's never been in the bottomless pit. But they have an angel who was over them, the whole lot, the worst one of them, 
He is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue he's not, hath his name Apollyon. Both of those names mean the destroyer. In the final days, this entity will arise from the bottomless pit, and he has been held down there with so many other devils. We don't know how many there are that have been locked up down there or waiting for these final days. And he will be let loose to create and to fulfill the devil's master plan for the entire world. He will possess the Antichrist and be the driving force to inspire the world to take his mark, to worship him and to ultimately worship the devil. For a fallen angel, if you think about it, to be named in the Bible is a big deal. The only other fallen angel that has been named in the Bible is the devil. We know his original name was Lucifer, the bringer of light. Now his name is Satan, the accuser. And there's only other two angels that have ever been mentioned in the Bible, and they're heavenly angels or God's angels. And we know those two are Michael and Gabriel. And so the fact that we have another name here of a fallen angel is very, very significant. This angel, whose name means destroyer, tells us about his nature, tells us also about his history. And probably the reason that he's been locked up in the abyss for so long. It's even likely that this angel was behind the evil and the violence that was present in the world before God had to destroy the entire earth with a flood to save Noah and his family. Now, I want you to keep in mind that before God destroyed the world with a flood, the earth was filled with violence. And I'll get you to turn back to Genesis chapter 6 with me. And God had destroyed the entire earth. Now, what comes about in the, the last seven years is that when you read the book of Revelation, most of the earth is destroyed with the plagues and the judgments of God and with fire. So, and that's to save the people out of it as well. So there's, there's almost like a parallel thing happening. I suspect, I don't know this to be entirely correct, but I, it fits beautifully, is that this particular uh, uh, angel, this particular demon, was probably the one who was inspiring the earth to be filled with the violence and eventually get men to kill each other off. And if you look at it, it says in Genesis 6.11, the earth was also was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. The destroyer was running loose by the looks of it. And God looked upon the earth and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. Why well, was inspiring people to go killing each other to be violent with that much violence? Well, whatever the sons of God were doing in Genesis chapter 6, you can be, and these are fallen angels, you can rest assured it wasn't good. Whatever they were up to, whatever they were doing, whether they were possessing people, whether they were trying something else, their goal was to destroy the ability for God to fulfill his promise to send the Messiah. If they could corrupt every human being and cause them to become violent and possessed, well, you know what? You know, they might be able to stop God's plan to redeem the entire world. So God saved 
Noah and his family during this particular time. And the last days are going to see the release into the world of every foul spirit that has been locked up in the abyss. And there are some, there, there are plenty of them still floating around at the moment. But there are some, and these are probably the worst of all of them because they wouldn't have been locked if they weren't doing anything ultra wrong here. They've been locked up in the abyss and let loose all at the same time into the world into the last in the last final days, and they will lead the world into a catastrophe. So Jude tells us that in verse 6 in Jude chapter 1 verse 6 it's only got one chapter anyway and the angels which kept not their first estate they didn't stay where they were supposed to stay okay they were supposed to stay in the heavenly realm they didn't they left their own habitation it says and he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day so the bible says that there are some who have left where they were supposed to be and they've come and done something else. And I suspect that that means that they were possessing people, that they were actually getting people to do by direct influence things they weren't supposed to do. They were living their lives through people. It's a bit like someone stealing a car. Um, you know, you'll, you'll break, into a, break into a car if you're a criminal because you want to steal it and you'll get behind the seat and you'll start driving it. And that's what they were doing with literally with people. They were driving them. Okay. And it says here that they've been reserved in everlasting chains, not everlastingly. The chains don't break, but they're reserved in darkness unto the judgment of the great day. What's the great day? They're, be, they're reserved until the time of the end when Christ will return to judge them all. But it says in Revelation they're going to be turned loose. And the king over them. He's named Abaddon, and he's going to be the one, the power behind the person the Bible calls Antichrist. And so he is going to try and destroy every saint on this earth. He is going to have all the angels that have fallen, a third of them, at his disposal. And so they're going to be in their last days. And so the Bible even tells us in 1 Peter that there are those who were imprisoned, who have been imprisoned in darkness from Noah's days in 1 Peter 3.18. It says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which... Also, he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. The disobedient spirits were the devils who tried to destroy the world and God had to rescue the world from them. And they've been locked up in prison. And they will be let loose from this prison. And the king over them is named Abaddon. And if you recall Jesus, and the reason I say that they're in prison because they, they possessed people, 
is because if you look at the encounter that Jesus had with the man from the Gadarenes, who was a man who was possessed and living in a cemetery, who had supernatural ability and power, when they tried to chain him, he even broke chains and fetters, um, who, was, who had gone loopy because he was indwelt by a legion of angels. There were a lot of them in that car driving him around. When the Son of God, when Jesus approached this particular fellow, they began to speak from him. And they automatically rec recognized Jesus as the Son of God. And they said, what have you got to do with us? What have you come here for? Leave us alone, they asked him. And so when he asked them their name or the name, they said legion because we are many. There are plenty of us here. And so they said, don't. The thing they pleaded with him for was do not throw us into the deep. They pleaded with him and they said, please don't throw us into the deep. What were they doing that they would be thrown into the deep? They were possessing a person. They knew that they, that they, were, they had it coming, but they asked Jesus, please don't throw us into the deep. Please don't throw us into there or throw, throw us into that, cast us into that, that herd of swine over there. And Jesus actually lets them do. But what, through that story, we're actually, we're actually shown that one of the things or reasons that a devil can be thrown into the abyss is for possessing people to do evil things. But what about an angel that can possess a charismatic person who will become the ruler of the world? Can you imagine what that angel could do? And so, especially an angel who's been tied up in that prison for who knows how many centuries and has been let loose knowing that he only has a short time to do stuff. Well, where are we going to be? Well, we're going to be, by the looks of it, having a seat in heaven to actually watch possibly what's going on when Abaddon rises from the abyss and possesses the Antichrist, and he will pretend, and this person will pretend to be the coming Lord to deceive the world. And just as a side note, I want you to pay close attention to the perfect way the devil counterfeits everything that God does. So if you know, the Bible clearly teaches that God is a trinity. God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. The devil has his own trinity, with him being the Father. Okay, The Antichrist is the incarnation, is the, the Messiah, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is the destroyer, the exact opposite of what the Holy Spirit is. But the devil has his own three that come together. On top of that, the Antichrist will also have his own prophet, which announces his coming and points to him as the Messiah in the world. And he's going to do miracles to convince the world that this is the Messiah, the chosen one, the holy one that has been promised. And we'll look at that hymn next week as well. This is an imitation of who? John the Baptist. So Jesus had John the Baptist who came before announcing to people, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, this Antichrist has his own prophet announcing, this is the Messiah that you've all been waiting for. It will be that particular prophet who forces everyone to take the mark of the beast on their right hand or their forehead as a sign of their love and allegiance to him, or they won't be able to buy and sell. That's a way of weeding out the people who don't believe in him. You know, the times that we live in, 
I said that we're, we're living in times when, you know, the first time in the first 100 years or so that you can have 10 democrat, democratically governed nations coming together in an alliance in history. We're living in those days. We're living in history that when um, there's a pandemic, the government can suspend your ability, your, your, your conscience and say it's mandated for you to take a vaccine, for instance, um, or you, you lose your job. Well, mate, if we can do that today, can you imagine the, the state of the world when the Antichrist comes into play, when he actually rules this world, when the destroyer from hell itself is actually ruling the world? You'll notice also the devil does a great job uh, of imitating God with seven rulers. We know God's, God's complete number is seven. The devil has his own seven. But what makes it even, and the, the, the Bible says that, you know, God created the world in six days. So the devil's going to have six before that seventh one, which only comes for a little bit of time during this sort of a little bit of a restful period before the last three and a half years. And then there's an eighth. And, and what's, what's interesting is that we, we are meeting together on a Sunday. A Sunday is not the seventh day. A Sunday is the eighth day, isn't it? So the reason we meet on the eighth day, not the seventh, is because on the Sunday, the Lord Jesus arose from the grave and a new creation is coming about. And we are the new creatures within it. So we celebrate the eighth day because God is doing, or God began something new when Jesus rose on the eighth day. Well, what's interesting is that from his seven rulers, from his seven heads on the kingdoms that have, that have existed over time in this world, the devil doesn't just have seven. He has now got an eighth, okay? And the eighth is ri rising from the abyss, like Jesus rose from the uh, from the grave, and then takes on the persona of the Antichrist, the one who impersonates Christ. And what you're going to see during this seven-year tribulation is you're going to see the devil also playing into the fact that Christ is dual-natured. So Christ is both God and man. And so this Antichrist will be both man, and then proclaim himself to be God, but he will be indwelt by a demonic spirit during the seven years. And he will have almost like two personalities. Do you remember Jesus, the Bible says, came as a lamb. And so in his first coming into this world, he came as meek, mild. He allowed himself to be crucified, to be ridiculed, to be tortured, you know, to be hung on a cross without speaking a word. But the Bible says when he comes back, he's going to come back as a, a roaring lion and he's going to devour his enemies. That's two very pictures of Christ, but the same person. Well, guess what happens in the first and second half of the tribulation period? The first half, this person comes along as the Messiah, the one that you know being called. He's going to save the world from all their problems. He's going to be the answer to all the conflicts that have occurred and all the things that you know that aren't going right. He will be meek and mild. He'll be like a lamb. But then in the second half, He's going to be like a roaring lion. He's going to speak blasphemous things, going to proclaim himself to be God and kill anyone who actually doesn't follow. So what I suspect is that the first half is that sixth, sorry, the seventh demon will be in charge to build up this guy. 
and and act like a, a, a Christ coming in on a white horse. And the second half, the uh, the demonic spirit that will be released from hell will then indwell him. The other guy will step aside, and this guy will act like a dual-natured person. And his goal will be then to destroy the saints. And the, the reason the Bible calls the last three and a half years the um, Jacob's trouble, and Jacob represents Israel, is because that's when things flip. At the three and a half years marks, things absolutely flip. He goes from being a guy who wants to support and protect them, and allow them to build their temple, to someone who's, who's then says, step aside, I'm God. And so he will seek to destroy anyone who comes in his way. So, and the scriptures say that he suffers a mortal wound. And it will look as if someone will even try to kill him or look like he is dead around that three and a half year mark. But I suspect that what's going to happen is that will open the door for him to be possessed by this Abaddon. And it will look like he's being resurrected, just like that devil has been resurrected from the abyss. And they will picture and make it as if they're like Jesus Christ, that they can't be killed. Interesting. And so Daniel 7.25 says, And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and half and dividing of a time. You're going to see that throughout the Bible, a time and time and half a time, a year, two years and a half a year. That's three and a half. Three and a half years comes over and over again in the Bible. It even gives it to us in days as well. So um, this three and a half years is three and a half final years of Jacob's trouble of the great tribulation um, is when this particular being comes into play. So turn me to Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 for a moment. 2 Thessalonians 2.3, the Apostle Paul says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. He, pretending to be God, demands to be worshipped. He will even have his own church, his own people, his own uh, following, his own idol that he's going to make to himself. His followers will be sealed with a mark, either a mark, a number, which is his number, or his name on their foreheads or on their right hands as a pledge of their love for him. Just as a believer today is sealed with the Holy Spirit and that's a permanent thing that will occur that seals their salvation. So a person during the tribulation period who has his mark upon themselves, either on their head or on their right hand, will be sealed. And there will be no change. There will be no re repentance from that. The Bible says that if you take that mark... There is no changing your mind. You will pledge your allegiance to the devil. You have devoted your life to him and you will know what you're doing because you will choose to worship the one who was calling himself God and the Messiah in direct opposition to Christ. We're going to look at that again this week. So 
let me share something else with you. Not only this, but all the major religions of the world are waiting for a Messiah to arrive. All of them. They're all waiting for a Messiah to arrive. The Jews are waiting for this, still for their Messiah to arrive, and they're probably going to think it's him when he allows them to rebuild their temple. The Muslims are waiting for the Imam Mahdi. The Hindus are waiting for the next incarnation of their god, Vishnu, mind you, the second part of the Trinity, in their Trinity of gods. They've got three, they've got three gods, Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. Those three form a trinity, and Shiva has manifest himself or has certain incarnations. And the next one is going to be someone coming on a white horse to save the world and to usher in his righteousness, and his name is Kalki. The New Ages and the Buddhists are waiting for their lord, Maitreya, to arrive and usher in the age of Aquarius. The Taoists are waiting for their Messiah, Li Hong, to arrive. And the list goes on and on and on. They're all waiting for a Messiah to arrive in this world, coming on a white horse to save them and to save the world from destructions. But let me just share with you something that a particular fellow who has been studying these things shared. His name is Wai uh, Tsang. And he wrote an article, and he's, he's an author, and he wrote a particular article called The Expected One, The Messiah Within. And he did it, he's not a believer, right? So he made a very succinct summary of all the, the Messianic expectations that the religions of this world are waiting for. And these are his words. I'm going to quote, This expected or chosen one is given many different names by the different religions of this world. To the Jews, he is the Messiah. To Muslims, he is the Mahdi. To Christians, the second coming of Christ, of Jesus. To Hindus, the Kalki. To the Buddhists, he is the Maitreya. Also, the Zoroastrians await for uh, Shayosh Yant. And even Taoist and Confucian scriptures talk of the coming of the future true man. Now listen to his interpretation of it. It is, however, reasonable to suppose that all these different names and titles are really referring to the same person. If we take it as our starting point that all world religion is really worshipping the same God and asking after the same truth, then all the world's prophecies are coming from the same source and so are really describing the same set of events and circumstances. Therefore, his conclusion is, all the world's religions are all really waiting for the same person. Now, if a if a shiver is uh, is uh, is uh, exp you're experiencing at the moment, um, I don't blame you. The extraordinary thing here, when you think about it, is that all these major religions waiting for a Messiah to arrive on a white horse to save them. All the religions believe that. By your works, you can save yourself and earn heaven or nirvana. Are going to get their man. They're all going to get their man. Because Revelation 6 says, And I saw, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. You know the four horses of Revelation? The first horse is a white horse. 
and he comes as the saviour of the world. Who is he? All those guys, all those ones who are going to, who, be, who have been prophesied in all the various religions to come except for Christ. But after the white horse comes a red horse, war, comes a black horse, famine, and comes the pale horse of death with hell following after him. And so when the angel of that bottomless pit is released into this world and the judgments of God rain down upon the earth in the last three and a half years, we're going to see hell released into this world. And we'll see the, the people of this world responding to this Antichrist like God. They will revere him like no other person in history. He will first come as a meek, mild, charismatic figure, and then midway through it, when he is indwelt, he will turn into the character of the devil himself. And so let's see how the people of this world will respond when he arrives. Look at Revelation 13, 4. Revelation 13, 4. It says, and they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Well, no one's going to be able to make war with him on the earth. And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given here unto him to continue 40 and 2 months. How long is that? Three and a half years. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven, which will be us. He's not going to be happy with us dwelling in heaven. And it will come, it will be given unto him to make war with the saints that are on earth and to overcome them. And power will, uh, was given unto him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The manifestation of evil will have come upon the earth. And the devil's plans that he's been trying for so long, and, and, and get this, he has tried this before. He possibly thought that Hitler was his man. Because when Hitler started to conquer one country after another, the devil no doubt thought, I'm going to get, I'm going to use this one to conquer the entire earth. He's the one. I've no doubt the devil was probably, uh, the, that the, uh, Hitler was possessed during that time. But he's probably tried it a number of times. He's probably tried it with Nero. He's probably tried it with, with Caesar, with Nero. Or, or, uh, he's probably tried it with a number of individuals during the... Sorry, Napoleon, I was going to say, not Nero. Napoleon. Because Napoleon nearly conquered the, the whole of Europe, pronounced himself emperor. It, was, it would have been a, a hop, skip and a jump to become the, um, the Antichrist. But we see that this supreme leader over the world... Um, will be a man with the demon possessing him and he will be ruling from Jerusalem itself. He will overcome Jerusalem again. And while the white rider on the horse is coming as the savior of the world and he has a crown given unto him, um, he is the antichrist. He is the replacement of, he is the counterfeit of that. But the true Messiah the true Christ will not be far from coming to this world. And he won't be carrying a bow. He's going to be carrying a sword, a sword that will come from his mouth. He is not having, he doesn't just have one crown, but he has many crowns. 
And he will not be just an earthly king who's trying to subdue. He is going to be the son of God who comes down from heaven itself. So I'm going to close with this passage. Revelation 19.11. And the apostle John sees the return of Christ to this earth. And he says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with the vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen white and clean out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of almighty god and he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written king of kings and lord of lords my brethren we need to be warning people that Christ will return. But before he returns, they, if they do not put their trust and bow the knee to Christ in this life, will possibly find themselves bowing a knee to the imitation of him, a devil who has come up from hell itself. They will be deceived the bible says and we'll look at that in detail next week they will be deceived by an amazing lie and we need to be telling them and warning them about this future time that's coming but also tell them that there is only one gospel in this world that points to the one true messiah who is now sitting at the right hand of the father he is up there and he will come down. He is not down there and coming up. And the Christian and Christianity, the gospel that we preach, is the only faith on this planet that teaches you that salvation has to be given to you by the one who died for your sins on a cross. Every other religion in this world, every all of them, all of them that actually preach and are waiting for their Messiah to come, all teach the same thing, that one way or another, you can work your own way to heaven if you try hard enough, which is a lie from the pit of hell itself. And they're all waiting for their Messiah to come. But we're waiting for the Messiah to come from heaven. In fact, we will be with him in heaven when he returns to this earth. We are, we are longing to see him face to face. This real historic Messiah who has already come to this world to, and suffered at the hands of the Roman, a Roman crucifixion. But who loved us so much that he was willing to go through all of that for our sakes. We need to warn people that there are rulers, there are principalities who are ruling and are, are trying to steer the nations of this world to eventually all come under the rule of a devil. And they're all preaching the same thing. They're all singing the same tune. And we need to be warning them about that, that the only way, truth and life, 
is in Christ. I pray that this sermon will spur you on to warn people about the coming judgment and this person who will imitate Jesus and do a very good job of it. Next week, we'll look at this little horn the Bible speaks about, what he will do, how he will use false religion, how the, the false prophet will work, and how in the end, he will be judged. And Christ will come and rule in righteousness and in judgment. God bless you all. I pray um, this message has been a blessing to you. I look forward to being with you again by the grace of God very soon. Um, but whatever opportunities we have to be with each other, whether it's online, whether it's on a phone, whether it's a walk in a park or a picnic or something along those lines, please avail yourself and spend some time encouraging the brethren. Um, God bless you. Looking forward to sharing the word of God with you once again next week. Thank you.